The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. So today on episode 12, we have William J. Federer, a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Some of his works include Endangered Speeches, How the ACLU, IRS, and LBJ Threaten Extinction of Free Speech, and George Washington Carver, His Life and Faith in His Own Words. William Federer, welcome to Master's Crib. Uh, Pastor Jason, great to be with you. I'm, I'm so excited. So just a couple minutes. Um, what exactly is going on with the work that you do? Now, why are you doing what you do and how long have you been doing it? Patrick Henry said, I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. Winston Churchill said, the further back you look, the further forward you are likely to see. And so history gives you a trajectory. I tell people history is not prophetic but it is predictive. Mm. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance, right? You look at a stock, how's it going to do? Well, how has it done in the past? And Mm. so we uh, get uh, insights into what's happening today by looking at the past. I tell people if there's a sheet of white paper and I put a a one single dot in the middle of the paper and I ask you where the next dot's going to be, well, it could be anywhere. But if I could show you all the dots preceding that dot, Mm. you could say, well, you know, give me a ruler and I can plot it out and draw a line. And gee, uh, probably the next dot's going to be up here somewhere. Mm. And so when we know a little history, it gives us a little bit of direction of where things might be headed. I I tell people history is just the history of human nature. Uh, We have human beings and they uh, act pretty much the same everywhere you go. Uh, and, you know, you go to, you know, the course schools are shut down now, but, uh, you know, you'd go to any school and you'd see uh, kids fall into different groups. Uh, you'd have the jocks and the geeks and the gossip girls and all the, the nerds. <laughs> and, uh, and so throughout history, people fall into groups and you have people that are lusting for power and those kissing up to those in power and those suffering under oppressive power and those saying i've had enough and they leave and go uh migrate somewhere else and Mm -hmm. um anyway uh but uh history is um one of the quotes i like from arthur schlesinger jr he's a uh pulitzer prize winning historian he said history is to the nation what memory is to the individual so have you ever met an individual who's lost their memory? Maybe, maybe they have Alzheimer's. It's really sad. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen, and we forgot how we got here. And as a result, we're just letting these freedoms being taken away. So when did you get started in this whole endeavor? Uh, years and years ago. It was um, we were, My wife volunteered us to teach... Uh, Sunday school class and uh, amongst uh, the different resources, there was a Haley's Bible handbook and at the front it had quotes about what some famous people said about the Bible. And I thought, well, gee, I'm going to go to the library and check out a book about what famous people said about the Bible. I couldn't find one. I went to other libraries and finally I started going to university libraries and reading through the messages and papers of the presidents, Supreme Court decisions, colonial charters, state constitutions, acts of Congress. And I saw God everywhere. Mm. Um, You know, virtually every president mentioned God in their inaugural addresses and swore on on Bibles. And, uh, uh, you know, the state constitutions would mention God in there somewhere, you know, uh, thankful to Providence for, you know, the ability to write our constitution and we have God in our pledge, God in our coins and all this. And so I saw this editing out of uh, God and um, started collecting these quotes. And after several years of it, I uh, printed the book and it, it hit a nerve and sold a half a million copies. Wow. And that opened the door for me to be on focus on the family and, uh, you know, with all these different programs across the country. And 
uh, and then begin to do TV and radio and so forth. But it all started with an idea teaching a Sunday school class. So I tell people ideas are free. <laughs> God can give you an idea and you just work with it and uh, watch it come to life. Oh, that is so awesome. So in the end of the day, you finished writing all of your books. You finished all of your television programs. You're, you're, uh, you're laying down for the night. What do you hope and pray that was accomplished by that day? Uh, well, number one, uh, please in the Lord, do the Lord's will. Uh, you know, one day we're going to close our eyes for the last time and we're going to be in the presence of the Lord because we believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. And, uh, and so he's the, the ultimate one we want to, uh, please and serve. And, um, but uh, also there's a proverb that says a good man leads an inheritance to his children's children. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the things I've seen throughout history uh, for the first three centuries of Christianity, there were 10 major persecutions. Christians were thrown to the lions and they were meeting in catacombs. I went to school in Rome and college and they would have these carved out of hillsides and caves. And, you know, I remember walking along a road and the tour guide took us this little rusted out iron gate and uh, he opened it and it squeaked and you had to like bend over and crawl back through this little space like you know 30 yards and it opens up into this sort of carved out room with first century christian graffiti on the walls and little candle marks on the ceilings and this was the christian experience for three centuries being persecuted by the government uh and it was very small a tight-knit group it was it was the covenant uh, where two or three are gathered in my, in my name, I'm there in the midst, and um, people were captured and thrown to the lions. And then uh, Constantine stops the persecution of Christians. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, he builds nice big basilica cathedrals. That's great. And uh, the next generation, their experience with Christianity is a nice marble basilica cathedral. Um, then you had another emperor named Theodosius in 379 AD. He outlaws paganism. And so now you got a bunch of these pagans fill, filling into these marble churches and saying, okay, okay, whatever the king says, I believe. I just don't want to get persecuted. Oh, and, um, and so it became more of a nominal outside thing of having um, this. And so a revival movement starts called pietism. that says, look, being a Christian is more than just agreeing with state doctrine. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. And it was so personal that it began this idea to, to withdraw from society, live in caves, join monasteries and this withdrawal and it's just this personal relationship with you and god now it is vital to have a personal relationship with you and god but if that's it and you're not affecting other people then something is missing and so there's this oscillating curve throughout christian history of you know well in one ditch on the side of the road it's outside state doctrine and i just gotta you know uh, say it i agree whether i do or not and then the other side, it's so personal that you just withdraw. No, there's a middle of the road. It's personal, but you still want to make an impact on society. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway. Well, that's, that's really awesome. So really, that's, that's what it's all about, leaving, leaving a legacy behind so, so these uh, stories can continue on. And uh, whether or not our names are on the books in the end of the day, that, that this is passed on. So that's... That's really amazing. I really appreciate your ministry. So let's just take a couple minutes, uh, you and I, and, and tear into God's word. We're going to be turning into Psalm 33, verses 6 through 12. I'd just like to read that. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose Lord is the God, whose God is the Lord, excuse me, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So just for a couple minutes, Bill, what does this passage tell us about the authority of the word of God? Well, it's the ultimate. Uh, it's God's word created uh, everything we see and everything we are. You know, uh, a little, oh, rabbit trail type of thought. Um, 
we always see things from our point of view, but imagine seeing it from God's point of view. So here's God. He exists for eternity. He's already existed for eternity. He's going to exist for, he exists for eternity, and he, he makes things. And everything, he's a creator. And everything he creates obeys him. And, and he knows everything that he created because it's impossible for him not to know. And everything he creates follows rules. And so you have the little quark and the little neutron and little proton and the little atom and the little, you know, amino acid and the molecule and the proteins and then builds organisms and, and everything follows rules. It's sort of like if you were writing a computer program. You first start with what's called machine language, which is basically on and off. It's a, you know, plus and a minus. It's a, a zero and a one. Uh, and based on that, you build a DOS program. And then on top of that, you build a Windows program. And then on top of that, you build all these apps. And, and then you got video games and everything. But it all is every little step of the road follows orders. And so God makes everything and everything follows orders. Now, why is that uh, insignificant? Because you, everything obeys God. But at some point in eternity past, God said, you know, I would like someone in my image that could love me. I mean, here's God. God is love. And there's an aspect about love is the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. Mm. So God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. But love, by definition, must be voluntary. And so he's, God sets up this thing we call reality, where we really can't do anything uh, other than our free will. Uh, everything we have, he's given to us. Anything we give back to him, it's just our free will giving it back to him. Um, you know, it's sort of like the, the credit card. You go to a, a, a little card swiper reader at the grocery store. Yeah. Um, your card has no battery in it. There is no power in your card to do anything. But when you plug it in that thing, that thing sends a signal to the card, to the chip, and the chip, if it's functioning correctly, will respond. And so we don't have any grace to save ourselves, but God sends out the grace and it's encapsulized in the gospel. And it says in the Bible today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. In other words, let the chip of your heart work and respond to God's grace. Mm. Don't harden your heart. Don't let it be broken. And um, anyway, so, so God made us. He, he gives us this reality where we have this opportunity to love him, which also means he has to allow there to be an opportunity for us not to choose him. Mm. Uh, otherwise, the choosing him really wouldn't be a choosing him. And so uh, uh, anyway, I, I could go on and on. But it's this idea that uh, that God uh, is wants our our uh, our love back, but he can't force it. And so, um, anyway, that's, that's awesome. I'm not quite so, sure where I was going with that, but no, no. So now, so his, his word, he created everything. He owns everything. And, uh, we see in this Psalm in particular creation responding to God's word, creation responding positively. And at the same time, we see an authority um, not only that, that comes from God's word that is over all creation, but specifically an authority over the nations. What authority does God have over the nations? Now, this is interesting. So here's Adam and Eve, and God gives them charge over the garden. Dress it, keep it, right? Uh, be fruitful, multiply. But then Adam uh, and Eve sinned. And the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members, servants to obey, to him you are a servant. Mm -hmm. So if I told you to do everything and you do everything that I tell you to do, uh, then relationship-wise, I'm the one in charge and you're the, the servant. Mm -hmm. And so when Adam obeyed Satan and ate from the tree, he positioned himself below Satan and that elevated Satan to being the God of this world, the God of this cosmos this world system. And uh, that's where you get uh, where uh, Jesus fasted 40 days. The devil comes to him and says, bow down and worship me. And I'll give, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world for they have been delivered unto me and I can give them to whoever I want. Mm. And Jesus 
thank God, said, no, uh, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And so, but, but the audacity for Satan to say, hey, these kingdoms are all mine. So let's analyze these kingdoms of the world. They are all top down, uh, whether it's a Pharaoh, a Caesar, or Kaiser, or Sultan, and Tsar. Uh, it's all a pyramid structure to society. And so um, you go back um, to uh, the first story of a, of a civilization is Nimrod Tower of Babel. And the Jewish commentator Josephus said Nimrod wanted to build a tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And he made everybody bake bricks and bring them or he would kill them. <laughs> and so it was this defiant against God, oppressive over man. And, of course, God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people what? Scatter. And so we see this first illustration of concentrated power and separated power. I tell people, hold up a fist in one hand and say concentrated power. Hold up your other hands with the fingers apart and say separated power. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. Concentrate power. And each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because why? You've got military advancements. And so instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, now you're killing with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a phalanx spear, the long Greek spears that Alexander the Great's troops had, or uh, the Parthian shot where they'd shoot uh, bows and arrows on horseback or the scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that came from China. The weapon improves, but it's that same selfish fallen nature of Cain killing Abel. And so these kingdoms keep getting bigger and bigger um, because of this military advancements and technological advancements. So now you can count and you can keep track and you can. So here you have Augustus Caesar with the biggest empire in the world at the time, wanting to have a social tracking system. He wanted to track and, and count everyone that was under his thumb. He wanted a worldwide census. There's something about dictators that want to control everyone. Um, that's under their thumb. And so uh, the king of England had the biggest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. 13 million square miles, half a billion people, all of India, Australia, New Zealand. And the king of England was like a globalist. He was like a one world government guy with him at the top. Mm. America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. And uh, democracy is where the people rule. A republic is where the people rule through representatives. But the people are in charge. And so we see how unique America is and say, well, where did our founding fathers get these ideas? They got a little ancient Greece, you know, a little ancient Rome, but ultimately ancient Israel. You think ancient Israel? Right. So New England colonies founded by pastors, and they went back to the Bible, and they looked at that first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt as the model. It's called the Hebrew Republic. It's the book of Judges, but it's that period of time before you get King Saul. And it's really an, an anomaly. Uh, here you have pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers and sultans and czars, and suddenly there's Israel. For 400 years, they function without a king. And anybody can be raised up in leadership and be a, a temporary judge. And, you know, and, and, you know, you have elders of the cities and, and everything, but it's a bottom up form of government. Mm. And so if you think of it as a spectrum of power, one side is total government. The other side is no government, total mm. government. You get a king. He rules through fear. You do what he says or he kills you. The mm. other side is no government, which would be anarchy unless each citizen is taught the law. Mm. It's like everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. Instead of a GPS telling you where to turn, it tells you how to act in real time. Be nice to that person and don't steal that, right? <laughs> and, and so the Levites were like the computer geeks that taught you how to download the app. Right. Go to the app store here, Google Play, press this button, map on line by line, precept upon precept. And everybody downloaded and memorized the law. Mm. But the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Ancient Israel introduced the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair 
and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know, you can get away with it. And then you think God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He is going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. Mm. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. Mm. So if every citizen is taught the law and believes they're personally accountable to God, they will exercise this internal self-restraint and you can maintain order in society with no king. And so that's what America's founders set up our government as. So when we say it's one nation under God, it's more than just a nice little acknowledgement. No, it's God is the battery that makes this whole thing work. That's the sun that makes everything grow. It's people walking around with this thought that I'm going to be nice to people because I'm accountable to God mm. and he's watching everything. You get rid of God, then it's just a bunch of rules that somebody made up. Why follow them? And some will out of habit or social acceptance. Others are going to say, forget this. Why follow these arbitrary rules that somebody made up? And they're going to begin to yield to their selfish side and begin to rob, steal, kill, and it's going to turn into chaos and anarchy and insecurity for life and property. And everybody's going to say, we need someone to come along with enough power to restore order. And someone comes in and you're back to a king. Mm. And it's this pyramid structure where if you're friends with this guy at the top, you're more equal. If you're not his friend, you're less equal. And if you're his enemy, you're dead. It's called treason or you're a slave. And so you're back where you started from. And so what we have done, our founding fathers, is they took the power of a king, separated it into the hands of the people. It's chaos. and let's each. That's why whenever you see around the world, you get rid of a dictator, maybe a Latin American El Presidente, or you get rid of a Muslim leader in some Sharia country or, or communist. And we say, hey, let's give them our constitution. And everybody's all excited. And in one election, they vote back in another dictator. And we're like, gee, what happened? I tell people, uh, if you think of it as a seed and soil, um, the, the seed is our form of government. It's, it's like a genetically engineered seed. It took 6,000 years and brilliant minds. And you've got the, the, the people and the you know, separated powers and three branches and everything. It's a great seed. But what do you do with seeds? You plant them in soil. What's the soil? It's the belief systems that the people are holding. So if you take the, this constitution, uh, this genetically engineered seed, and you plant it in a, a Muslim country, uh, what do they do? They vote in Sharia law and uh, the death penalty for anybody that leads Islam, and you can beat your wife. And we're like, why didn't they have the same harvest that we had? Uh, the Soviet Union, fall, Union falls down uh, after 1991 and Berlin Wall, and, and we helped them, you know, former Soviet republics set up, you know, constitutional government. It's, they're all taken over by the mafia, the organized mm. crime. And we say, why didn't the seed produce the same harvest? It's because they had 70 years of atheism plot in their soil. And uh, atheism says this life is all there is. Do whatever you can to get ahead. But in America, our founders planted this seed, our form of government, a democratically elected constitutional republic. They planted it in a soil that was 98% Protestant, 1% Catholic, and a tenth of a percent Jewish. That was the, the makeup of America at the time of the founding. And it was 100% believing in the Bible that there is a creator who gives you rights, uh, that the government's job is to protect those rights, and you, you need to be nice to people because you're accountable to this God. So it produced this great harvest of liberty and freedom and uh, innovation. And you can spend time in your garage making some new invention and, and you get to keep it. Why? Because the government's job is to protect all your stuff. Uh, so anyway, um, I'll pause there. No. So, so now is that was our step forward in creating this nation – I'm going to move into some contemporary implications and some arguments about that in just a second, but um, just kind of hanging on to this verse 12. Was that our founders laying claim to this verse? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, because there's no specificity here whatsoever. I remember hearing Tim Barton say that, uh, you know, this it doesn't say blessed is Israel whose God is the Lord. I mean, this is pretty open-ended here. Is that a blessing that's available to to any nation that would uh, would take God as their Lord. Definitely, any nation. Mm. And um, uh, 
it's, you know, you, you look at uh, Korea, you know, I mean, here, Christianity is the largest religion in the Korea, and, and it has become very, very prosperous, um, you know, but um, matter of fact, a study was done. Robert Woodbury, Baylor University, he studied the countries in the 1800s where Protestant missionaries went to, and then he looked at those countries today as to whether or not they're more prosperous or less prosperous, whether they have more freedom or less, less freedom. And lo and behold, the countries where what he called conversionary Protestant missionaries went, those countries are more prosperous today. Mm. And the countries where, uh, you know, others went and, you know, Catholic and so forth, uh, they're not as prosperous. And when you realize it, when the Protestants come in, they say, look, you have a personal relationship with God. You personally need to read God's word. So we need to teach you how to read. And so it created a literate populace. Whereas when you know, using it as a contrast, when the Catholics would come in, they would educate the upper ruling class. But the common poor people, they, they just stopped going to a pagan temple and now they're going to a church. But it's still a hierarchical structure. Um, when you teach people the word, they begin to see these stories where God says that, you know, the, the, the wicked servant buried the talent, but the good guy went out and, and multiplied it, um, you know, and so they see, hey, I want to be diligent and so forth. Uh, and so it's statistically provable that the countries where these Bible missionaries went to and they taught the Bible, those countries are more prosperous today. Wow. That is awesome. So bringing this up uh, into some cultural implications, some contemporary implications, um, there is a debate that's going on right now. I'm not going to mention their names, but there are two pastors that pastor large churches, and they have two different ideas, and they've been talking about this in recent days. And um, it's whether or not our nation, the founding of our nation, was an act of obedience or disobedience, whether it was a rejection of authority or, uh, or whether or not there was something else going on there. So would you just weigh in on that? Like the founding of our nation, was this an act of obedience or an act of disobedience? How do you see this? Um, if a father tells his son to go out and engage in prostitution and stealing and robbing and killing, does the son need to obey the father? Mm, absolutely. If if a if a, a a husband wants to tell his wife, hey, yeah, we need some extra money, go out and sell yourself as a prostitute. Is, mm. is the wife supposed to obey the husband? Right. No, no, you only no, obey no. the authority when the authority is submitted and obeying God. Mm. And so that's the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson lists over twenty different reasons why we were rebelling against the king. He's incited the natives on the frontiers with the tomahawk and the, the you know butcher knife to kill our frontiers. He has um, taken away, uh, you know, robbed cities on our coast. He's sent armies over. He's, uh, you know, taken the judges from us paying them to him paying them. And so now these judges want to keep their job and they're not giving justice. They're only functionaries, you know, for the king. And, um, and so when the king stopped honoring the God-given rights of the citizens, one of the founders said he unkinged himself. Mm. So he stopped his authority under God by saying, I'm not going to respect your God-given rights, and I'm going to send my people in, and you got to do what I say, and so forth. So um, it's uh, I've spent you know gee, 30 years studying the Founding Fathers, uh, that argument is like an old one. It's like if anybody still believes that, that shows they, uh, I hate to say it, they really haven't studied American history. Okay. Yeah. Um, and when you see that America's founders, it goes back to the Bible. Pre-King Saul, post-King Saul. Mm. The Protestant reformers, they went to the pre-King Saul period as God's model. And this is where the people were taught the law and they're responsible to God, like I just said. But then uh, the priest stopped teaching the law. And it says every man did that which was right in their own eyes. And you had some priests with concubines. The law says the Levite is to marry a virgin of his own tribe. So the Levite wasn't following the law, much less teaching it. You have another story uh, where a Levite has is in the house of a guy named Micah, and there is a silver graven image 
And the tribe of Dan comes along, steals the graven image, and tells the Levite, come along with us, and you can be a priest to our whole tribe with this graven image. And you're scratching your head thinking, isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have graven images, and here's a Levite with one. So the Levites stopped teaching the law. It turned into this chaos. You had every man doing what was right in their own eyes, and the people go to Samuel the prophet, and they say this self-government system is not working. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. Mm. Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. Mm. So God's perfect plan, original plan for Israel, was to not have a king, have everybody be taught the law, everybody own, own private property be blessed, right? Um, mm. But then when they sinned, it says God gave them a king in his wrath as judgment. And a storm and lightning came and destroyed their crops. And all the people told Samuel, we sinned by asking for a king. And he says, yes, you did. But mm. God's going to still work his plan through this anyway. And so sure enough, you get Saul. Now it's interesting. Saul was touting his son, Jonathan, made a league with David. And he turns to his soldiers and he goes, none of you guys care about me. And one guy, Doeg the Edomite, says, Saul, I care about you. I was actually at the city of Nob and I saw David come and the priest gave him the sword of Goliath and some bread. Saul says, hmm, thanks. Bring those priests to me. They come. He turns to all of the soldiers and says, kill them. Mm. The soldiers hesitate. And Doeg the Edomite says, I'll kill him. And he kills them all. What just happened? The soldiers had been operating under the old system where each person is accountable to God to follow the law. Mm. And the law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn somebody to death. And there's only one witness, Doeg. So they still have a conscience. They're hesitating. They're like, this does not compute. Right? Doeg mm. says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll kill. So wherever you get a king, he wants to insert himself between you and God. So you have the king of England. Uh, there were some dissenters, nonconformists, that believed that your worship of God is only of value if it's voluntarily given. The king didn't like that. And he uh, sent his men in there to arrest them. So they passed in 1664 the Conventicle Act. So if you had uh, a small group of Christians meeting, it was called in Scotland a conventicle, comes from the word covenant. And so uh, they broke in and would arrest you. And then in 1714, they did it again. And so you had to believe exactly the way the King of England tells you to believe with his Anglican church, or you're a criminal. And so uh, they passed the Riot Act, R-I-O-T, which means if you have 12 or more people meeting and you are not Anglicans, and you don't have approval of the government, the police will break into your home or your church, and they will open up a piece of paper and read the riot act, which because they thought, well, maybe you're planning a riot. And they'll say, you immediately have to disperse, or we will arrest you and kill you. And so that actually went into the vernacular. Oh, read them the riot act. This, this, this is really harsh. And so if you like the king having that authority, that's... John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, he was in a Bible study. The police show up and arrest him and drag him out. And he goes, we weren't plotting anything. We were just reading the Bible. <laughs> if you like that, fine, go back to a king, right? But the wow. founders of America believed in something called conscience. As a matter of fact, one of the founders of the Baptist church in England was Thomas Heldwise. And he was arrested, put in Newgate Prison where he died. And they, they wouldn't give him any writing instruments because he was writing pamphlets. But he had, they didn't feed you in that British prison. You had to have some friend miss you. And so a friend brought him a bottle of milk. Instead of a cork, there was a wad of paper. And so he unfolds the paper. It's blank. And he takes a splinter, dips it in the milk, and he writes out his pamphlets. The milk dries. He folds the paper up. He sticks it in the empty bottle on the, the outside the door as his friend comes to collect it and takes it home and lights a candle and holds the paper just over the candle so the heat of the candle flame turns the milk brown and they can read it. And they printed these pamphlets. And what does the pamphlet say? One of them said, if the king can stand there on the day of judgment and answer for your conscience, fine, believe whatever the king tells you to believe. 
But if the king is not going to be there on the day of judgment, you are accountable to God for your own conscience. And so that was the attitude that America had. William Penn uh, spent eight months in the Tower of London uh, because he was a Quaker and not an Anglican. And so when he founded Pennsylvania, he says, look, we are not going to have the king telling you what to believe in my state. You can believe whatever you want. Uh, and it began this, this tolerance. And it's, so uh, anyway, hopefully that makes sense. No, definitely, definitely. That is, that is so awesome. So we have this structure of authority that we, we come to the states underneath. So we're no longer going to listen to the king because the king is not operating under the authority of God. So we have power without authority, which we know is dangerous. So we decide we're going to come over here and, and we are going to have freedom and we are going to build a new nation. And that's, um, we are all blessed to be able to be standing here on this side of all that great work and all of the bloodshed that it took to, to get us here. So in considering that and all that was, that was put into our founding, what sorts of changes do we see in our nation when we step away from that authority structure, from the authority of God that you've seen? Right. So if you can imagine, uh, I have a slide in my PowerPoint presentation. Uh, one side of it, it has God, King, people. So it's an arrow where the king didn't believe everybody was made equal. He believed he was made a little extra special. He was God's lieutenant upon earth. And so they, they called him the, the divine right of kings. So the, the creator gives all the rights and power to the king, and he dispenses them to whoever he wants. Now, the other side of the slide, it has a picture of God with an arrow, and it goes down to each person. And then a little curved arrow that comes up, and that's the elected politicians that we elect out of ourselves. And so we do not have a go-between. So our founders basically left out the go-between. And we say... The creator gives rights to each person. The, the creator doesn't give rights to the king, and then the king gives it to the person. No, no, no. We leave out the king. God is jealous. Mm. He wants to have a personal relationship with each person. He doesn't want some government functionary that says, hey, I'm in between you and God. You know, uh, I mentioned to uh, people, when you study history, uh, the first invention, uh, or the, the first you know, they, they say that you, the people groups were hunter-gatherers. And even the Bible has the story of Adam and Eve gathering the fruit off the tree, right? And then people groups transitioned to agriculture. And then we have the Bible story where Cain was a tiller of the soil. And, um, and so when people groups would transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculture, and they started planting stuff, they needed to know when to plant and harvest the crops. So they had to keep track of the seasons, which means they had to keep track of the stars. Mm. And so they would build these big immovable structures to observe the stars to know when the seasons were going to change. And there would be somebody that would climb up the structure, the pyramid, the ziggurat, the, you know, the Kohoki Mound, whatever it was, they'd climb up, look at the stars, come back down with this secret knowledge from heaven as to when to plant the barley. <laughs> <laughs> And this person ended up claiming to be an intermediary between these common people below and the heavens up above, oh right? And so this turned into this divine right of kings thing. And, um, and so that's what the founders were breaking away from. They said, look, we don't want the king was the head of the Anglican church. And in 1534, they passed the oath of supremacy where you had to acknowledge the king was the head of the church. Otherwise, uh, and, when King James, uh, so you had Martin Luther Reformation, 1517. Mm -hmm. He translates the Bible into German. First time the German people ever had the scriptures in their own tongue. Uh, and then you have William Tyndall in England translating the Bible into English. And William uh, Henry VIII has him burnt at the stake for doing it. But then uh, Henry VIII wants a different wife. The Pope won't recognize his divorce. Uh, and so he decides to break from the Church of Rome, and his advisors say, hey, if you want to break from Rome, you need to get yourself an English Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther got his German Bible. That helped him break away. You need an English Bible. And so Henry VIII says, great, get me one. Well, they, they basically took William Tyndall's work 
uh, that Henry had just killed William Tyndall, but they take his work, polish it up, and they call it the Great Bible. And they spread it all around England. And it's the first time that English people get to read the scriptures in their own language. Awesome. And they begin to see all kinds of stuff. Well, now, from the king's point of view, he dusts his hands and says, that's it. We got our English Bible. We're broken from Rome. But now people get to read it, and they're breaking off into all these sects, these little divisions, these different, you know, pilgrims and separatists, all these different groups. And the king's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you, you can read the Bible in your own language, but you, but you still have to believe what I tell you to believe. <laughs> and so a group starts this, that wants to purify the Church of England. They're called Puritans. And another group wants to separate themselves, and they're called separatists. We call them pilgrims. And... Um, and so they fled to Holland, then fled to America. Um, but um, when you uh, see this idea that um, the uh, Bible translators, um, for the longest time, they were using the Latin Bible. And for a thousand years, the Latin Bible would use the word church. Um, well, when the Muslims invaded Greece, Greek scholars fled to Florence, Italy. They brought their Greek New Testaments with them. And so we call this the Renaissance. And so the scholars in Europe are now reading the New Testament in the original Greek. And they're seeing some meanings that they hadn't seen before. One was the word church. In Greek, it's ecclesia. It's the word used in Athens, where they would call, ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling, where they would call the people out of their homes to the marketplace in Athens to deliberate on what the city's going to decide to do, because it's a democracy. And Jesus said, upon this ecclesia, um, you know, upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. He, he wasn't talking about the clergy lady model, where you have these go-betweens that you have to go through them to get to God and so forth. No, he's talking about everybody has a direct relationship with God. Everybody is a body. Everybody has a part to play in making this thing. It's the difference between a dead pyramid top down and a living tree bottom up, where every root and every little capillary root participates in sucking in nutrients to make this thing work. And so you have this New Testament church model where everybody's involved. First, you help out with the nursery. And then you help out with the little kid in Sunday school class. And then the junior high Sunday school class. And he that's faithful in the very little shall be entrusted with a little bit more, a little bit more until finally you're a deacon. And finally you work your way up. And then you begin to take oral, pastoral responsibilities. And, and, it, and it grows. You, be, you move up into leadership. And then ultimately you have the, the, it branches off and it spreads. And it begins to spread. And you have more starting and starting and starting. And, and eventually uh, evangelize the world. But... Um, and so this concept is what the Protestant uh, reformers latched onto, that the church is the ecclesia, it's the body. And so you began to see them calling themselves congregationalist churches because the congregation was the church. Now, um, the Geneva Bible um, is what the, the pilgrims brought to America, and the Geneva Bible emphasizes the church aspect of it, and King James didn't like that. And so he wanted a brand new Bible. He did insist on it being excellent and everybody checking everybody else's translations. And so it stood the test of time. The King James Bible is the world's best-selling book. Um, but King James did give just a couple instructions to the translators. One of the instructions was that he did not want any novel interpretations like the word congregation. In other words, he wanted to maintain this hierarchical structure, top-down, him at the top with his archbishops of Canterbury and his deaneries and vicaries and, and everything. He wanted to stay at the top. He didn't want the body being involved in deliberating. And so basically the Puritans looked back to that first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt. King James looked back to the King Saul and on part. They both were quoting from the scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. But the the... Puritans uh, said, look, we have God telling Saul that his original plan was for them not to have a king. And so we take uh, an emphasis that this was God's original plan. So after the Reformation, the scholars, in your, before the Age of Enlightenment, you have a century there. What were the scholars studying? They were studying this Hebrew Republic. They actually called themselves Christian Hebraists. And they would study the Talmud. They'd study Mamanides. They would study... Uh, you know, all the Hebrew scriptures, and, and they ended up becoming experts at it so much that later Jewish rabbis would quote from these Puritan scholars. That was the, the 
one was John Selden, whose sister married John Harvard, who started Harvard University. So they taught Hebrew at Harvard, and they taught it at Yale. <laughs> Way back then, they even gave the graduation address in Hebrew. Could you imagine that? Wow. And so they were wow. identifying, you left the Pharaoh, we left the King of England. You crossed the Red Sea, we crossed the Atlantic Ocean. You came into our, your promised land, we're coming into our promised land. And so the, the Puritans clearly identified with this Hebrew Republic period of time. Uh, and so that is the roots of America. <clears throat> the King of England was identifying with the King Saul and on part. I'm God's anointed king. And you got to do what I say. Mm. Wow. So we really, as a nation, have to get back into this idea that our authority is is God Almighty, and we really have to get back into this this mindset. I mean, the Bible has stood the test of time. It has knowledge for us for today. And if our nation was built on these principles that come from the Scriptures, how much more than today? Do we need to turn to the Bible for wisdom and insight? Because it does speak to, to all areas of life, right? It really does. And it is, um, the more you dig, the more you find. It's, it's infinite. Mm. Um, and, um, I, uh, and it's, you know, you don't go up to a stranger on the street and tell them the deepest secrets of your heart. <laughs> uh, you, when somebody seeks you, and ultimately, you know, with uh, a spouse and you have this, then you begin to open up your heart. God doesn't open up his heart to, to those. He says, if you seek him, you will find him. In other words, that when you get into his word and you study it, and, and then he begins to open up these, these jewels. Mm, that is amazing. Well, Bill, I'm really, really excited that you were able to come on tonight, and I'm just so grateful for this conversation. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners how they can learn more about you or the ministry of Amerisurge. Well, thanks, uh, Pastor Jason. My website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. Uh, telephone number is 888-USA-WORD, 888-USA-WORD. I send out a free daily history email. Uh, called the American Minute, and they've written about twenty different books and DVDs. Uh, and there's you know videos on my website that you can watch. But uh, again, it's this idea of uh, learning from the past and gaining insight. Um, uh, I, I you know I've read through Thomas Jefferson's stuff so much, and there's one thing that uh, he always believed in a creator. And he always believed that the government should not force your conscience. That is really a foundational part. So here we have today the government forcing people's consciences. Uh, Jefferson wrote the you know, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. He even mentioned it on his gravestone. He was so proud of it. it and it says that uh, the government shouldn't force people to pay taxes to spread uh, you know, religious opinions that they disagree with. And no man shall be molested. Uh, on account of his religious beliefs. Well, guess what? That's exactly what's happening today. Mm. That if you hold religious beliefs, they're going to say, oh, you can't be a judge. Oh, you got it. You can't be a teacher in the school. Oh, if you have Christian beliefs, we're going to send, we're going to, you know, molest you. We're going to, we're going to take away your freedoms. Um, we're going to say, if you don't throw away the 6,000 years of male and female and embrace a new transgender thing that we just came up with, uh, then, then we're going to have you lose your job. Um, they're, they're, it's like Nebuchadnezzar, where he says, when I blow my trumpets, you bow to my statue. I don't care if you have a warm feeling in your heart for my statue. You bow, or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. The king wants to insert himself between you and God. He wants to say, okay, I'm going to tell you when you can have church and when you can't have church. I'm going to tell you when you can pray and when you can't have prayer. You know, in China, the government comes in and says, um, okay. Uh, we want to say in the, the first of the Ten Commandments because it doesn't want, I'm the Lord thy God, there's all the Lord's going before me. The government wants to be at the top. And then they come in and say, well, you can't talk about the book of Revelation and you can't uh, share your faith with anybody under 18 years old and you can't do this and that. And, and then they, they're putting cameras on the doors of churches so the government can get facial recognition and track everyone. And now they're bulldozing down the churches. Um, we... we 
Jesus is is the one we obey, and uh, we like it when the government uh, lines up with that. But if the government doesn't, you have Peter, mm. and you have the Pharisees saying, "Don't speak in that name anymore." And Peter says, "Should we obey God or man?" Mm. And uh, and they turned around, and went back right out in the the temple and started teaching again. You know, um, and. and and so God does put us in situations where we have to make a choice to put him first. We don't like it when this happens, but let's look at Abraham. God knew what was in Abraham's heart. And God said, okay, Abraham, I know it's in your heart, but I want to see something. I want to see you take this son that you really, really love and take him to the top of Mount Moriah and kill him. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, Abraham didn't complain. He just started obeys. And then finally God says, okay, stop. Uh, you know, you can, God knows what's in your heart, but he wants to see some action. He wants to hear the words come out of your mouth. It's like a man sitting on the sofa watching TV and says, uh, have you, have you told your wife you love her recently? No, no, no. But she knows my heart. Uh, okay. Uh, have you done anything to show your wife? You love her. No, no, but she knows my heart. It's like, dude, <laughs> you better say some things and do some things. You know, God knows what's in your heart. Yeah. He wants to hear some words come out of your mouth and take and, and proclaim him uh, to the nations. And he wants to see some actions mm. where you're demonstrating your faith. Absolutely. Wow. Wow, that is so awesome. Well, Bill, thank you again so much. Really, really appreciate your time. I'm going to be praying for you and for your family and definitely for your ministry going forward. So thanks again for coming on Master's Crib. So thank you again, Pastor Jason, for having me on. Well, thank you. Lord bless you.